This is Our American Stories. And we're going to dig in and tell the story of an American entrepreneur, an internet impresario and personality. And his name is Gary Vaynerchuk, known as Gary V, an American serial entrepreneur, four-time New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and internationally recognized internet guru. First known as a leading wine critic who grew his family's wine business from three to $60 million. He's also an angel investor and advisor to Uber, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, among others. He's a regular keynote speaker at global entrepreneurship and technology conferences, and we just think the guy's story is fascinating and his advice really compelling. Like many great American story, Gary V's story starts with an immigrant family coming to the United States to pursue the American dream. I was born in, uh, in Belarus, in the former Soviet Union, and my family immigrated here when I was three years old. It was very, very difficult. We were extremely poor. As a matter of fact, <laughs> this stage is dramatically bigger than the studio apartment that me and my grandparents, parents, and great-grandparents lived in. It was difficult, mainly because great-grandma was kind of crazy, uh, um, but also because we had no cash, we didn't speak the language, grandma got mugged a weekend, and Queens, New York was not the paved streets of gold that my Russian parents thought it was going to be. It was the late 70s, it was the Carter years, my dad was a construction worker in Russia, that's what he thought he was gonna do in the US, but clearly that wasn't gonna happen. The great uncle that was gonna kinda take care of us, my dad's great uncle, while we were in Italy getting our visas changed, cause I don't know if you remember, but Russia and America weren't best friends back then, so it took a while to get here. They wanted to make sure I wasn't a spy. Um, he died, so that didn't work out um, for anybody. Um, and we came to the US and it was a struggle. This great uncle of my dad's was very well off and he owned a small liquor store in New Jersey. So that's pretty much what my dad did. He commuted from Queens, New York to Clark, New Jersey. I still make fun of him because I'm convinced that he spent more on gas than he was getting paid. And he started our lives for us. And between my dad's hard work, and I didn't know my dad until I was 14, and we'll get to that in a minute, and the fact that my mom, how do I put this smartly, is the greatest human being of all time, and instilled so much, thank you, and instilled so much self-confidence in me that it should probably be illegal, and is clearly the foundation of everything I'm going to achieve in my life, um, we start our lives. He started making money at a very young age, but his father had different plans for young Gary V. I had seven lemonade stands when I was six years old. So I had a lemonade stand franchise. How many, how many people here remember the big wheels? You remember, got it? Yeah, those were awesome. I used to drive my big wheels around Edison, New Jersey to pick up my cash like I was Tony Soprano. <laughs> it's crazy. I learned a lot of business lessons there. This one kid, Eric Conrad, his parents were divorced. I didn't understand, I was so little, I didn't understand why he would be in our neighborhood in the summer but not in the winter. He would come every summer, he was a baller. He would make his own signs. He was a hustler, I'm sure he's doing well now. And I learned my first lesson. He would, you know, I would give them all 50 cups. Cups or a quarter, it was easy math. He would steal cash. He would take some, but he sold so much more than everybody else that I never got rid of him. 
And so it's very funny what you can learn and I've used that concept you know, still to this day. So it's funny what you can learn and where I really started learning business was when I was 12 years old because when I was 12 years old, I started a massive baseball card business and I was selling $1,000 to $2,000 a weekend in the malls of New Jersey and that was tremendous. You know, I had like $10,000 cash under my bed when I was 12 and let me tell you something. When you're 12 and you have 10 G's of cash under your bed and you're not selling weed, you're doing a good job. (laughs) Very good job. So I was happy about that. That was awesome. And then I turned 14 and my dad ruined my life. He walked in, he said, you're going to work today. I said, what? I have a baseball card show. He said, no you don't. You don't mess with Russian immigrant dads. I decided I should probably go if I wanted to continue growing. Um, So... We, we, we went to the liquor store, I cried the whole drive home to the store, cried, real cry. 14, I'm, not, I'm proud, I cry, cry, devastated. Dad, how much are you gonna pay me? Two bucks an hour. I started crying much harder. <laughs> and I proceeded to spend 10 hours in a basement bagging ice and made 20 bucks for the day. Instead of going to the mall, hanging out with friends and girls and selling baseball cards. Clearly my life had taken a bad turn. And this is what I did for the next two years. It was devastating, I hated it, and my life from 14 to 16 professionally was dark. Gary's father had finally let him out of the basement when he realized a golden opportunity that would change his life forever. About 25 people came in and asked for the same thing. Camus Special Select 1990 Cabernet Sauvignon. It was the Wine Spectator Wine of the Year. And finally, you know, people coming in, we had sold out of it the prior week because it just got announced. And finally, you know, people coming in, do you have it? No, and they're leaving. And you know, the entrepreneurial DNA is like going off. I'm like, this sucks. This is not good business. I don't like this. We have like six parking spots and they're all taken up by people that can't buy something. I'm like, I'm gonna take a back order. We didn't have a back order system, but I didn't care because I was going to school on Monday. <laughs> so, guy, next guy that comes in, I'm getting a back order. Guy comes in. Sir, what's your name? You know, da-da-da, got his name, address, phone number. How much would you like? I'll take 10 cases. So I'm like, man, this guy's an alcoholic. (laughs) I was like, are you gonna drink all that? Are you having a party? He goes, no, 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 I collect wine. That was it. At that moment, I can, you know how you can, you know how like when big things happen, you can, I can literally, I remember the weird t-shirt I was wearing, I was sitting, in the middle of the store, my life changed because I sat there and said, because at this point I wanted to help my family business. As any good punk entrepreneur kid, you think everything your dad is doing is wrong, right? And I see all these things that I can fix, but I wasn't interested in the subject matter, right? I was already thinking about what was I gonna do when I converted this whole thing into a baseball card store, right? <laughs> I started learning about wine. No 16-year-old should know as much about the Loire Valley in France as I did. I was so ridiculously confident and I so knew what was gonna happen that I realized that high school was the last vacation I was ever gonna have. And you're listening to Gary Vee, his story in his own words, serial entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, a guru on all things web and digital. More on his story, more from him, Gary Vee's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. Gary V's story continues here. Again, an American serial entrepreneur, four-time New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and internationally recognized internet guru and personality. He was not your average student, Gary V, and he struggled with school as he tried to grow his father's wine business. Somewhere around fifth grade, I realized I did not give a crap about Saturn. Algebra wasn't gonna do it for me. And so what I did was I deployed and honed my skills at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So by the time I fell in love with the notion of what that was gonna be, that was already ingrained in me. I thought I was gonna open up 8,000 wine and liquor stores, the Toys R Us of wine, sell the franchise, buy the New York Jets. Here's where the story starts getting relevant to you. I go to college. I'm playing Madden 95 in my dorm room. Dominating, by the way. (laughs) My friend runs in and he says, you have to come and see this. I finish my game, I walk into a room and there are eight 18-year-old dudes hanging around a computer. Now, for a lot of the youngsters in this room, you don't recall this, I was 18 years old at this point and probably spent less than three hours on a computer in my life. By being a DNF student and getting an F in computer class, I was able to stay off the computer, right? I get on there. In eight minutes, somehow, I end up on a message bulletin board in AOL that's selling and buying baseball cards. In 14 minutes, I make a transaction. Within 20 minutes of ever being on the internet, I said, my God, I don't need to open up 8,000 stores. I'm gonna do something on this. 18 months later, I launched one of the first three e-commerce wine businesses in America called winelibrary.com. Don't clap. Here's why. The first 18 months that that site ran, that site cost $15,000 to build. We were a small family business. $15,000 to build that website. In the first 18 months, because I was still at school, I wasn't fully back at the liquor store, in the first 18 months on that $15,000 investment in 1996, seven, eight internet world, where most people still weren't on it, that $15,000 investment brought back $480 in sales. I don't know how many of you have a Soviet father, but Sasha Vaynerchuk was not happy with the ROI. This, this failure taught Gary a very important lesson about success. It was one of the more important lessons I've learned in business. The disproportional reason So many people in here will not win. Let's just get right to the chase. It's your lack of patience. For some unknown reason, when people go into ventures like this and other things, they somehow miraculously think it's gonna happen in five minutes. That you're the one person in the world, whatever you guys call your big club and put posters of each other up on, you think you're gonna be in that circle in five minutes for some reason, because you're the most charismatic, you've figured out some weird system, you've got it. And the lack of patience is what hurts so many people. And so, by losing so much money in those first 18 months, I had walking into a 
system that I had to be patient, I had to build, I had to work. From 22 to 30 years old, for eight years, in my 20s, I worked 15 hours a day, seven days a week, in my dad's liquor store. Today, with all the things that have happened to me, I get emails on Facebook from friends I went to high school with, often starting with, Gary, you're so lucky. I reply to every single one of them, all of them, with the reply of an opening line first, Jan, great to see you again. You look great, kid's super cute. P.S. I am super not lucky. Let me remind you, Rick, remember when we graduated college and you went to the Jersey Shore every weekend and hooked up with chicks and drank beer? I worked. Rick. In those 15, 18 hours a day out of school, I grew my dad's business from a three to a $60 million business, which meant I was 27 years old running a $60 million business, and I was paying myself $54,000 a year. You know why? Because I'm patient. Because I don't need a cool watch. I don't need a fat whip. I want to build something. I want to build something. From there, Gary continued to build by using new online tools to deliver content. There was something called Google. I looked at it, I saw this new ad product where if you searched for a wine, you could buy the first result? That was insane to me. I thought that was incredible. And so I bought the word wine and many other words like Cabernet and Pinot Noir the day Google AdWords started. Uh, How many people here have done Google AdWords in their career? Very nice. I owned the word wine the day Google AdWords started for five cents a click for nine months before anybody bid me up. And that worked. And I kept going and then my career took a massive change that I think will really impact a lot of people in this room if you follow this blueprint. There was a new website out that I was intrigued by. It was called YouTube. Everybody in the world was really not ready for online video, it hadn't happened yet. I've been wanting to like play in that space. I finally saw this site, YouTube, it was a couple months old. There was not a single video on YouTube that had a million views yet, period, on the whole platform. So seven months after YouTube came out, I started Wine Library TV, which was the first time I was doing content, not advertising. And the premise of the show was very simple. I sat at my desk with four bottles of wine and I had somebody videotape me drinking it for 20 straight minutes. (laughs) It was a great gig. And somehow a year later, hundreds of thousands of people watched me taste wine and give my thoughts. And what I did was I understood the wine business at that point. I understood my craft at that point. How many people here have a friend or relative that is fairly into wine? Raise your hands. So you guys know exactly what I know, which is the second somebody gets just a little bit of wine knowledge, you're drinking the wrong year, shut up. So what I did was by knowing that, I talked to people about wine instead of down to them. I talked about wine the way it actually smelled and tasted to me instead of the words on the back of the label. I called wines, you know, this reminds me of what a racquetball smells like when you first open the container or If I ate an entire pack of Big League Chew and swallowed it, this is what this tastes like. Or when it didn't go as well, if you were at a farm and a sheep farted in your face, this is what (laughs) this wine tastes like. 
Gary Vee then goes on to talk about the importance of what we call social media regarding attention, sales, and connecting with people. Everybody was talking about this app called Twitter. Everybody thought it was the stupidest thing of all time because who cares if you're walking the dog or eating pizza? I thought it was the future of email. I invested in Twitter. I made a video about it. Facebook saw it. I spoke at Facebook. I became friends with Zucks. I invested in Facebook. And then I saw a bunch of high school kids playing on Tumblr and I invested in Tumblr. I'm rich. I run a company right now called VaynerMedia. We're a $100 million a year strategy and creative and media agency. We have Under Armour and Toyota and Dove and Budweiser and the biggest brands in the world paying us to sell stuff on the internet. Let's start with a couple things that you need to know. Social media, it doesn't exist. It's a slang term. Social media is the slang term for the current state of the internet. If you are sitting in this crowd and still not devoted to these platforms, you will lose. Because the only thing that people care about in marketing and sales that are smart and successful is attention. And if you don't realize that everybody's attention is now in their phone, you are not paying attention to society. How many people in this room, in this arena, (laughs) how many people in this arena are always within arm's reach of their cell phone in every 24 hour window? Over 50% of everybody's time in the world on a phone is spent on a social network. This is where we live. And for you to sit in this audience and disrespect Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest, all these platforms is an insane thing. When I had 50,000 followers on Twitter, I could get more people to do something than I can today at 1.3 million followers on Twitter. It's why when you roll up at me and go, I have this many followers, I don't give a crap. It doesn't matter how many followers you have, it matters how many followers you have that care. You're not paying the bills with 100,000 Instagram followers that you bought on eBay, jerk. Yep. Exactly right. You're listening to Gary V. His story, by the way, and his advice. If you're in marketing or anything like it or advertising, that last piece is for you. Gary V's story here on Our American Stories. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell a lot of stories about the men and women in our military on this show and we tell a lot of stories about Americans of faith. And today we have a story about a remarkable man who lived, served and died at the intersection of these two great communities. This is the story of a Catholic priest, a U.S. Navy chaplain, one who earned our nation's highest award for valor. Here's Father Daniel Mode who wrote the book on Father Vincent Capadano, appropriately titled, The Grunt Padre. It was Labor Day in the United States. People were running about to the beaches and the last barbecues, having a joyous time before school began. But in a whole nother world away in Vietnam, the war was continuing to rage. 
And on this Labor Day of September 4th, 1967, Father Capadano found himself 50 miles to the southwest of Da Nang with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Early that morning, a small platoon of men of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines was on a typical search and destroy mission, a patrol. They found the enemy, or really the enemy had found them. This small group of less than 100 men found 2,500 North Vietnamese in a major offensive during elections in Vietnam. Obviously, this platoon was quickly overrun, and more and more command elements of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines were added to this battle that would be known as Operation Swift. One company after the next, including M Company of 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Father Capadonna was with them at the headquarters when they got the call to go, and they were to go to a battalion aid station that was quickly being set up so that the wounded and the dying could come to a place on the battlefield. That's where Father Capadano needed to be. So he boarded the helicopters with M Company and made their way towards that battalion aid station, literally in the midst of the battle. The helicopter didn't make it there. It was literally shot down in the midst of rice fields so close to the battlefield. Father Capadano got off the helicopter with his men there are two platoons on either side as they made their way now on foot to that battalion aid station. But between them and that aid station lay the conflagration of war. They set themselves up on a small knoll. On the other side of that knoll raged the battle. On this side, M Company established its command post. Father Capadano could hear the gunfire, the men engaged in battle, and he heard the radio operator calling back to the command post, we're being overrun, we're being overrun, we can't hold out. That was Corporal Lovejoy. Well, Father Capadano couldn't hold out anymore. He had been in Vietnam for 16 months. He had already served with the 7th Marines, was in eight major battle campaigns. He knew what combat was all about. He knew where his men needed him most, and he knew where his sacraments were needed most and it wasn't on the safety side of that knoll of the hill. He dashed over that hill, found that radio operator, Corporal Lovejoy, grabbed him by the shoulder and brought him back to relative safety. Time and time again throughout that late morning and early afternoon, he would do the same thing with the wounded and dying. He knew where the sacraments were needed. It wasn't on the safety side of the hill. And in a firefight like that, it doesn't take long until everyone gets injured at least a little, and Father Capadano was no exception. His first wound of the day was through his right hand. It was shot, disabling his fingers. He was bandaged up, but refused to leave the battlefield on the next medevac. He said, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Oftentimes, the Marines deployed tear gas through the area in order to dissuade the North Vietnamese who don't have gas masks to disperse. All the Marines donned their gas mask, save one. He had lost it. Without a thought, Father Capadano took off his gas mask, gave it to that young Marine to continue the fight, while Father Capadano choked back the tears. For that heroic act, he got his second wound of the day in his right shoulder when a mortar went off, now disabling his whole right arm. Again, was bandaged up, but refused to leave the battlefield, only saying, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Sergeant Peters was dying. He propped himself exposed to fire 
on a tree stump. Sergeant Peters would receive the Medal of Honor that day for his heroics on the battlefield. Sergeant Peters was an orthodox man, again dying, exposing himself to gunfire so that he could point out where the machine guns were on the ridge. No one dared go near Sergeant Peters save one man, Father Capadano, who ran to his side despite the bullets, despite his own wounds, to pray with that man, to care for him in his last hours of life, and prayed the Our Father as he died in his arms. After that scene, a Marine shouted out, my gun is jammed, my gun is jammed. Without a thought, Father Capadano took the rifle of Sergeant Peters ran across the battlefield without firing a shot to give it to that young Marine to continue the fight. The last moment of Father Capadano's life took place near a machine gun nest where three Marines, one of them being Ray Harton, Corporal Ray Harton, were going to try to put down that machine gun nest that was getting the better hand of the battle. As they made their way there, they were all shot. Two instantly killed. Ray was shot in his left shoulder. A corpsman went to his side, Corman Leal. That corpsman was shot through his legs. Both of them now were lying on the battlefield bleeding, expecting that the next thing they would feel would be bullets or bayonets. Instead, it was Father Capadano running across the battlefield to them. First, he went to Ray Harton, who again was bleeding through his shoulder. He blessed and anointed him. Ray had just served his mass the day before on Sunday. And he said these words to him, Staying calm, Marine. God is with us all today, and you're going to be okay. Then he ran to the side of Corman Leal. Again, his legs had been shot. He prayed over them. And at that moment of his prayers, Corman Leal was also Catholic. He was shot 27 times in the back. And so ended the life of Father Vincent Capadano here on this earth. For his gallantry, Father Capadano earned our nation's highest decoration for valor, the Medal of Honor. But Father Capadano's influence went well beyond Vietnam, well beyond September 4, 1967. One man who used to teach in school with him when he was a seminarian read the story of Father Capadano's death. He hadn't been to church for a long time. And because he was so moved by the heroic aspect of Father Capadano and knowing him, he decided it was time for him to get back to church. He walked into the church, told the priest why he was there and wanted to go to confession. And then the priest, kind of amazed at this whole thing, said, well, why? Why are you coming back? And he told him the story of Father Capadano, and then he said these words, I guess a missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? And as you can imagine, Father Capadano changed the lives of many of the Marines he served with in Vietnam. One of those Marines is a name you might recognize from our story about him. You'll certainly recognize his company. One of the persons I got to know through this who was with Father Capadano on the day he died is a lieutenant, Fred Smith, the founder and CEO of FedEx. But on that day of September 4th, he was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He knew Father Capadano well, and it was at that death that inspired Fred Smith to re-engage in his faith, to re-engage in a purpose in life. Ultimately, he would say that it was Father Capadano's example and witness that propelled him to take that risk so many years ago to found that company. The father of Vincent R. Capadano, his service to his country, 
to his fellow soldiers, and most of all, to his Lord. His story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite regular segments, Life Lessons, from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, On Men and Women. People often uh, wonder, has success changed your life? And yes, it's changed the way I live. I live in a much bigger house than I would, would have lived in, and I have uh, more fast cars, good-looking cars and everything, and a big wardrobe. Nah, I wouldn't say a big wardrobe. I have a lot, of, a lot of clothes, not like my wife. I don't spend a lot of money on clothes, and that's what I'm going to get at. In some ways, it changes your life, money, but in other ways, it doesn't change who you are and how you view things. Although, uh, you know, I'm very comfortable, I still buy used books on Amazon. Okay, why should I pay this price? I don't need new. You know, some things you need new. You're not going to buy used socks or used underwear. Okay, that's for sure. You're going to buy that new. But when it comes to a book, the fact that somebody read it doesn't, doesn't change it. Okay, so my wife still drives in my kids. Why are you buying a used book? It'll come in with some pages bent. Yeah, the words are still there. So... So it's a funny thing about life that I still look for value. I don't want to overpay. Now, that's not true about my wife. <laughs> women, and I'll tell this, there's a funny story about men versus women. And this is very important, matter of fact. I think there should be a course in high school, a required course in high school and in college about how men and women are different. And they should have a woman talk about their view of men 
in their view of women, then they should have me come in and talk about my view of men and talk about what men are and, what, and how we view women. They're so different. Now, again, I'm not saying that you can't, uh, that a woman can't be a, the chief scientist or can't be a football player. Whatever you want to do, you can do, okay? If, if you can be good at it. But the way that men and women in general, okay, I'm generalizing, but you know what? Generalizations are generally true. That's the point of a generalization. So generally, men and women are very, very different. Think differently. And it's so important to learn this early on because that's the source of conflict between men and women because they don't get it. Nobody ever told them how different men are than women and how their brains are wired differently and how they think differently. In some ways, better. Men are better in some ways and women are better in some ways. But it's, that doesn't matter. It's all different. And here's a great story about it. I took my wife on a cruise and I was surprised. I actually liked the cruise. But cruises have little boutiques on them, you know, or out to sea, and what, you know, the, the cruise company takes advantage. What are you going to do? You've got to spend money. You, got, you know, especially the women, they go shopping, okay? So we went to the jewelry store. It's about three days before the cruise ended, and we're, we're walking around. We look, go to the jewelry store, and oh, my wife found a watch. Oh, that's nice. Can I try that on? She tried it on, and I saw her a watch. And it was the Casio watch, it turns out. And I, and I tried it. I said, oh, that's a nice watch, too, because most of my watches were thin. You see, 20 years ago, thin was in. Thin watches. You know, see how thin you can make a watch. Now, that does take a lot of skill to pack it all like, like an iPhone. Thinner is better. All of a sudden, watches, it's got to be a big bend here. You've got to be wearing an alarm friggin' clock on your arm for, you know, so, so you can see, I don't know why, but big is it. So I was looking at a bigger watch, and my wife found this watch. My wife's watch was about $800, and the men's watch was about $600, $800, Okay, we can afford that. I mean, cruise isn't that cheap, okay, you can afford that. But we said, you know, on any purchase, other than food, I'm gonna say, well, let's think about it. Let's think about it. So two days later, which is one day before the cruise ends, big sign, sale, 50% off. Well, of course, because the customers are leaving. These customers you're never going to see again. And there's no shortage of these watches, okay? They come off on an assembly line, and they're still going to make money at 50% off. So better make something from these people, and then we'll put new watches up there in the next group. So now her watch, instead of 800, was 400. And my watch, instead of 600, was 300. Unbelievable. My wife says, a Mao, that's her nickname. Oh, I like this watch, it looks great. And I'm happy with my watch. I said, you know what? Let me check on the internet. Let me check on the internet. Her watch, list price on the internet, wasn't 800, wasn't 400, 175. My watch wasn't 600, it wasn't 300, it was 250, shipped to your house. Now, that's a story about watches and a story about a cruise. But wait, where's the whole thing is about difference between men and women? How did my wife react? I don't want that watch. I don't want that watch. She loved it. Three days ago, she loved it. She tried it on 15 times, loved that watch. But now it wasn't an $800 watch anymore. It was 170. I don't want that watch. It's crap. That's how a woman reacts. Me, I liked it at 600. I liked it more at 300. And I bought it at 275. <laughs> 
So guys are happy. They find something they like. It's cheaper. It's better. It's a better deal. Women, they find something they like. Oh, it's cheaper? No way. I don't want it! <laughs> Men and women are very, very different. And that's a fantastic story. And I think it applies, you know, just about 90% of the time to men and women. Shopping. Shopping. Guys generally don't like to shop, okay? You know? There are cartoons on the internet. Uh, you just, just go on to Google Images and say men versus women. You'll see these. There's one that uh, I recall. It, it's a bird's eye view of a mall. It's a drawing of a mall. And then it says, underneath that, guy shopping for a pair of jeans. It shows a red line from the parking lot to the jeans store and out. Right? Under that, woman shopping for a pair of jeans. Red line goes in every store and leaves without the jeans. Buys something else. And that, I think, is another example of men versus women. Men are very goal-oriented. They need something, I need a pair of pliers. I go to Home Depot, I buy the pliers and I leave. A woman needs nylons, she goes to the mall, goes in every friggin' store, buys something and doesn't come home with a nylon. So, you know, it's, it's a riot, but it's important. And it's important that people understand that difference before they get married, before they get married. And a lot of times women Women's way of looking at things is right. When, when we moved to California, we were looking for property. And uh, we had sort of an unlimited budget. And you know, that makes it harder. When you have a limited budget, there are a limited number of homes to look at, and you've got to pick one. When you have an unlimited budget, it took us a year. Okay, so we finally found a home, a uh, very nice house uh, in Rancho Santa Fe. It was uh, $8 million. Beautiful home, beautiful home and uh, actually signed a P&S on it uh, to buy it. And then we found this home, which is considerably more, more than double. And as an engineer, I put together a spreadsheet and I compared price per foot and operating costs and everything. And the house that we're in now, I said, well, this doesn't make it. It's over, overpriced. Oh, it's, it's overpriced for what you're getting, right? This house, the $8 million, perfectly good. We loved it until I loved it until my wife found this house and then hard to compare. So I was studying these spreadsheets and I was trying to explain it to my wife on an analytic basis of value and cost projections and whatever. And you know, she's not a scientist, she's an artist. And uh, she said, well, I don't understand all that, but let me ask you two questions. Can we afford this house, the one that's double? I said, yes. And do you like this house? And I said, of course, who could not like this house? It's a work of art, a work of art. And she said, well, my rule is, if you like it and you can afford it, you buy it. Which I never thought of that way. You know, I, I thought of, if you like it and can afford it, and it's fair, and this and that, and the maintenance, then you buy it. Too complicated. I decided she was right. At this stage in life, now at an earlier stage in life, when you're building your career, that's wrong. Just because you can afford it doesn't mean you should buy it, okay? It, it should have value to it, all right? You don't want to overpay at that stage. But at this stage of my life, I decided that a woman's perspective was the right way to think about it, and I'm happy we did because it's a fantastic house, and forget the spreadsheets, forget the spreadsheets. So sometimes it's worth overpaying. It's worth overpaying, and it didn't hurt me to overpay. 
because I enjoy it to that degree. And there you go, another life lesson from Dr. Bob. And my wife and I have a similar story. I was Mr. Spreadsheet with a new house, and she just said, can we afford it? And that's like, gulp. Yeah, we can. And Mr. Cheapskate got overruled by a family that was pretty smart, and and we love our house, and I love my house. But if it had been my way, we would have just not done it. Dr. Bob's story, his life lessons. Here are now American stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from our very best writers, and Jonathan Rausch is an award-winning author with seven books and many more magazine credits to his name, but the book we're going to talk about today is personal. It's called The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, and it's Jonathan's detective story about why he and so many of us fall into a funk right when we appear to have it all. And Jonathan, you start your book with the story of a man named Carl. Tell us about him. Carl is a guy in his 40s. He's objectively super successful in life. He's got a good marriage. He's got kids that are happy. He's recently switched to the job kind of thing he's always wanted to do. And yet he feels strangely unfulfilled. He comes home at night thinking, what's the matter with my life? Why am I so discontent? He started to feel like there's something wrong with him. He he told me he was actually starting to feel a little bit scared. He wasn't even telling his wife about it because he didn't want her to get upset. So he was holding it all in. And I heard this and when I was 54, about 10 years older. And I thought, that is my life. That is exactly what I went through. You know, you wrote that, quote, it feels kind of conceited to bring it up to my friends. They just kind of look at me and say, geez, you got it all. So there's sort of a a shame, oddly enough, in feeling this feeling of, if not depression, uh, unease, fear, at a time when most people would look at you and say, you've got it all. What do you got to complain about? Well, that's right. His subjective well-being, how good he feels about his life, And his objective well-being, the circumstances of his life have completely parted ways. And and that, too, is what happened with me. I knew I was in trouble when I was 45. I'm a journalist, magazine writer, and I won a national magazine award, which is the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize for the magazine business. It just doesn't get any better. And that made me feel fulfilled for, like, 10 days. And then these creeping ideations of, you know, I'm wasting my life. I should quit everything and go somewhere else. They, they came back. And that's when I knew what was going on was strange and irrational. I felt just the way Carl did. I haven't earned these feelings. I should be grateful. Why am I not grateful? Yep. Why am I not grateful? Let's talk about Dominic. Much of his identity was wrapped up in his work and things hadn't turned out like he expected. And yet he characterized the stage of his life as appreciative. So talk about him in contrast to Carl. Dominic is 
a little older than Carl, about five years when I spoke to them. They're actually very similar demographically. They're a closely matched pair. They even travel in similar social circles. Dominic has been where Carl was a few years ago. He felt that same dissatisfaction and restlessness and unease and sense that he was wasting his life. But by his early 50s, he senses he's begun to kind of turn around. He's He's feeling like his expectations are a little bit lower, and he's somehow feeling more appreciative of what he's got on a day-to-day basis, just you know, being with his daughter, his family. And I, at the start of my book, I juxtapose these two because, in many ways, the big difference between them is actually their age. Carl is five years younger. He's at a different point in the happiness curve. Let's talk about Thomas Cole and his series of four paintings, The Voyage of Life. This is a 19th century painter who I think had stumbled upon these insights in his art long before social psychologists had come to the same conclusions we'll get to in a bit. Talk about Thomas Cole. I beheld them for the first time when I was 20 years old, and they they just stopped me short, partly because of their beauty, but partly because of the story they tell. So Cole is a landscape artist, And he sets out on a commission to do a series of paintings depicting the voyage of life, starting with childhood. And what they show is a baby, then the same young man, then middle age, then old age, in a boat on a river. In the front of the boat, on the prow, is an hourglass. Behind the boat is a guardian angel, in most of the paintings, out of sight of the young man in the boat. The first one shows the baby emerging from the womb into a kind of Garden of Eden. The second one shows a young man exactly the same age I was when I first saw it, about the age of 20. And he's reaching for a castle in the sky. And those are his ambitions for life, not just his ambitions for accomplishing things, but his ambitions for happiness, because he thinks if he accomplishes the things he wants to do, that that's going to be fulfilling. Well, surprise, the next painting is midlife. Rapids, dark clouds, craggy rocks, um, the tiller is knocked off the boat. He's looking overhead and, and praying for deliverance. But blocking his view of the heavens are dark clouds and, and demons. And that's Thomas Cole's portrayal of where Carl is at. What's so interesting about these is that there are no people, buildings, cities, society, nothing like that. It's a portrayal of our psychological journey years before there even was such a thing as psychologically. Cole is saying, this is how it's going to feel to be you at these different portions of your life. And it turns out he's exactly right. You know, it's interesting when you're going through that, and I I hadn't seen these paintings in at least 15 years back when I lived in D.C., and they startled me. But what I did not see in that final painting, because I had my own biases about old age, is I saw all the darkness in that fourth painting and not the light. And that was my own bias, and we're going to get to that later as well. But when you were younger, did you see the same thing? Do we see what we want to see or see what our experience allows us to see, Jonathan? I saw myself exactly in youth because I was 19 and expected great things for myself. I just didn't know what they were going to be. But I thought, you know, 
I knew I just, I had an inkling I wanted to be a writer. And I thought if I could even just ever get one article published in a major magazine, just one, I'd feel fulfilled for the entire rest of my life. So that was completely accurate. It painted my life. And I also remember thinking, well, that middle-aged one, that's not going to be me. I mean, I knew it was something like that for my father, but I thought, well, you know, any good thing that happens to me, I'll be grateful for and satisfied. So in the future painting, the future me, in middle age, the young me was not ready to see that. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Jonathan Rausch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. This is Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we're back with author Jonathan Rausch, who's written The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And we were just talking about how so many of us experience more happiness and satisfaction in our youth, and then later in our lives, than during midlife. Something that even the great 19th century painter Thomas Cole showed in his work. By the way, the National Gallery is in Washington, D.C. His work is there. Worth a trip just to see it. It's so staggering and so beautiful. The Adventures of Life. Jonathan, you were motivated to look into this topic of happiness and ultimately write this book because of your own life. It's odd to be in your mid-40s having achieved all of your important life goals but feeling down. Talk about your own journey, starting with this quote from your book. Quote, I was in the closet with my unhappiness. Well, I was, and Carl is. I think Carl said that he only ever told one other person how he was feeling, and it wasn't his wife. I talked to another guy who was going through the same thing, and he said that he had tried telling a friend or two, and and then he stopped doing that because one of them gossiped about it, and he he didn't want to be a source of actual ridicule. You know, oh, Lee's going through his midlife crisis. Hey, Lee, when are you going to buy the sports car? Ha, ha, ha. Right. So the happiness curve, is totally normal, natural, and healthy. It's very unpleasant if you're going through it, but it has a payoff, which we should talk about, which is what happens in our 50s, 60s, and beyonds. It's reorienting us to be less focused on ambition and achievement as a source of our personal well-being and more focused on connection and community, which comes later in life and is a much more fulfilling source of happiness. But in between, there's this nasty transition when we're disappointed in the happiness achievement has brought us, and the new values haven't really arrived yet. That's a natural process, right? It's a little bit like adolescence. It's just something many people go through. I mean, a lot of people have a hard time in adolescence, so, you know, fine, we help them get through it. But we make it much worse. We do that in a few ways. And we should talk about all of them, but one of them is what you just mentioned. We make fun of this period in life. And we make people feel like middle age is supposed to be the peak of life. You know, they're masters of the universe. They're taking care of their kids and their parents, and they've got the mortgage, and they've got the high-profile career, and they're good at everything. They're supermen and superwomen. So 
if people are feeling bad in this portion of life, and it does turn out to be a very vulnerable portion of life, well, they're bottling it up. They're feeling like, I can't tell anyone about this. And, you know, I'm a gay man, and I lived through life in a closet. And very quickly, when I started hearing people's stories, I realized this is the closet all over again. I mean, it's never going to be super easy to be gay, but having to bottle it all up, be ashamed of it, not tell anyone, go on about your life without opening up about the true you, that makes it much worse. And that's what's going on with Carl. Indeed. And I would say this about so many things in life. The more we open up and share, the more we can know that other people in the world are going through the same thing, Jonathan. Let's talk about happiness and income. Quote, all the evidence says that on average, people are no happier today than people were 50 years ago, writes Richard Laird, a prominent British economist. Yet, at the same time, average incomes doubled. This paradox is equally true for the U.S., Britain, and Japan. So economic well-being doesn't make a person happier or less happy, Jonathan? Well, it's a bit more complicated than that because poverty is immiserating. So getting out of poverty is really important. But beyond a certain point, they're diminishing returns of additional income because it turns out that once you're beyond the poverty level, you're, you're living pretty well, it's just not actually that helpful to have your fourth or fifth you know, million dollar. In fact, it can be counterproductive because of what psychologists call the hedonic treadmill, which is when you're in a race for money or status, you're always comparing yourself above you to the people who are higher than you and you're trying to catch up. But there's always going to be someone higher than you. So you become like a gerbil, um, one of those little running, running loop cycle things. The more you try to get status, the more you feel like you're not getting there. So beyond a certain point, investing and in making more money or having more status turns out not to be a reliable way to increase your well-being and sometimes can make it worse. Yeah, here's the most fundamental finding of happiness economics you wrote. The factors that most determine our happiness are social and not material. Talk about that. This is, this is the core finding of research in multiple disciplines now. Economics, psychology, neuroscience. Human beings are tribal animals, we're social animals, we're wired to be in groups. And the main determinant of our happiness is having trusting, loving relationships, supportive relationships, reliable relationships with the people around us. Investing in people and connections and community in a supportive way, that is the opposite of the hedonic treadmill. It turns out that those, that's like putting happiness in the bank. It not only makes you more satisfied with your life in the short term, it's cumulative. It's, it's not a situation where the goalposts move. Unfortunately, when we're young, it's hard to focus on those things because we're wired to be ambitious when we're young. Evolution wants us to go out and you know, really impress, impress our fellow tribes, people, and get lots of status and lots of social connections and you know, a fat Rolodex and thus lots of mating opportunities. So that means early in life, it's harder to live according to this, what we now know about happiness. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try, though. Indeed. Let's talk about Aristotle 
and the virtues he wrote about centuries ago relating to life. It turns out after all these centuries, he was on the mark about a lot of things. Human beings are still in the end, Jonathan, human beings. Yeah, it's funny. I wonder about Aristotle. Was he a creature from outer space? Because he got so much right, and it took really modern science to understand how right he was. Aristotle is a Greek philosopher, of course, um, 5th century BC, and he makes this important distinction that real happiness is not just transitory cheerfulness. It's a sense of fulfillment with your life, a sense of satisfaction with your life. And that, he says, comes not from pleasure, but from inculcating in yourself a virtuous life which basically means doing things that are good for yourself and other people and making that a habit. So you don't even have to think about it that much. And all of this turns out to be exactly true. So much so that, you know, I kind of wonder how did he know that there's a big basic distinction between happiness in the sense of emotional feeling good right now and happiness in the sense of well-being, feeling satisfaction with your life as a whole Everything we're talking about in this conversation is about the latter. Indeed. It's about that sense of well-being, which is much more important for life satisfaction overall um, than just your mood. You know, I don't think people can hear that often enough. The culture, Jonathan, sends so many messages directly to the contrary. Buy this, you'll be happier. Go here, you'll be happier. Travel here, you'll be happier. Love all these different people as opposed to one person, and you'll be happier. In the age of Tinder and Instagram, this is very counterintuitive. Yeah, that's the thing about Aristotle. He's been rediscovered by modern science, as has wisdom, which is another piece of Aristotle, which we should come back to. But we have, as a culture, spent the last multiple decades moving in the opposite direction. The idea behind Facebook, you know, it was supposed to be, we'll connect the world and everyone will be happier because we'll have a zillion connections instead of just, you know, these 30 or, or so key people in our lives that we mostly talk to face-to-face. Well, it turns out the opposite is true. It turns out what we're doing on Facebook is not connecting, it's displaying, as psychologists put it, Um, which means showing off our carefully curated lifestyle homepages in which we're always happy and we're always on vacation and, and showing, you know, pictures of big smiley pictures. Or we're displaying our animosity to the other side, to groups that we hate. Right. Which is a way of ingratiating ourselves with our own group. So that means, you know, we're on Twitter slamming people and trolling. So it turns out once again that that the old wisdom about this is right. There's no substitute for close connections in person, face to face with real people. And when we come back, we're to continue this terrific conversation with Jonathan Rausch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Go to Amazon and buy this book. Again, it's The Happiness Curve. And I'll tell you, you'll feel happier about a lot of things and better. If you're going through some things, you're going to get through those things, more than likely. And these are just, well, it's just a part of life and living, these stages of life. The Happiness Curve, Jonathan Rausch, we continue our conversation after these messages here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return with author Jonathan Rausch and his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Go to Amazon and buy this book. You won't put it down. You'll learn so much. Give it to a friend, too, especially if they're in their mid-30s, early 40s. Heck, give it to people in their 20s, too. They can at least get a sense of what's coming in life. Then they can get through life in a better way, in a, in a, in a, well, in a more relaxed way. Let's talk about the curve part of your life, Jonathan. We live in a society that celebrates and glamorizes youth. But on average, most people reach their highest levels of life satisfaction in their later years. Not in childhood, not in midlife, when many of us are at our professional peak. This is a fairly new discovery. Talk about it. Well, yeah, it goes back about 20, 25 years. The biggest, strangest thing I learned in writing The Happiness Curve is that midlife crisis is very often literally about nothing. And we should come back to that because that throws off a lot of people. But the most surprising thing I learned is what you just said, that other things being equal, of course, individual mileage will vary, but other things being equal, as we get older, our life satisfaction increases right through old age. We're actually programmed by evolution as we move out of our 50s and beyond to invest more in those key relationships with other human beings, to care more about community and less about personal advancement. And that plus changes in the brain, which actually make us more positive about life as we get old, actually increases contentment, even in many cases if we're ailing and sick. This is the opposite of the stereotype of aging, which is old people are crotchety, lonely, depressed. And after about age 50, you know, it's going to be a long, slow decline. And of course, that makes it worse because everyone who's unhappy at age 45 or 50 thinks, well, I'm, this, is, this is bad and this is the peak. It only gets worse. So then they get pessimistic as well as disappointed. So it's very important for people to understand that that's not true at all. The stereotype of aging is, is just plain wrong, and this is one of the most robust findings out there. Um, things get better. Emotional satisfaction gets better as you get older. You get better at regulating your emotions, experience less regret, less stress in any given situation, more positivity, even true of what you perceive. They put people in brain scanners, and older brains react more to positivity you know, things like smiley faces and less things, less to negativity, things like frowning faces. So I tell you right about time also a lot, Jonathan. Time matters. Those were two words you wrote together. It was a sentence, and it was a big one. Talk about why you put those two words together. We imagine that aging is the passage of time in our lives is a neutral process, so, you know, it's just the clock ticking. It's the background. Or we imagine that aging is a process of slow decline because, of course, you know, our bodies deteriorate over time and then eventually we die. So those are the two models of how age affects us in life, but they're both wrong. The big finding of the last, really, it's only been nailed down in the past 10 years or so. It's really brand new stuff. Um, in multiple disciplines, is that the shape of time is U-shaped, and that's the happiness curve. The passage of time tends to reduce our life satisfaction, other things being equal, from early adulthood, you know, when we're about 20, 
to about midlife. And we'll experience typically a nadir, a bottom to this cycle at around the age of 50. It varies depending on country. And of course, individuals are different. And then time, just when we least expect it to, just when we've given up and we think, oh my God, I'm in for a lifetime of disappointment and gloom, time turns around, it switches sides, and it goes into this reverse cycle of positive feedback where we're feeling better about life and we're positively surprised that we're feeling better because we thought, you know, we're going to decline into sadness and death. And, and those two things feed on themselves. So that's the shape of time. And that's what Thomas Cole's paintings are really about. He makes this clear. If we look hard, we see that there's an hourglass is the prominent feature of three of the paintings. So his message is, this is what time is going to do to you. And let's talk about that midlife malaise, because you said it's often about, well, like Seinfeld's show, nothing. Talk about that. Yeah. We imagine that if we're not feeling good about life, then there must be something wrong with our life, something we've got to change, you know, job, marriage. In my case, it was job. When I started having this fog of disappointment that I couldn't seem to get away from, I started fantasizing about escaping, walking, quitting my job and escaping to some other whole different kind of line of work. I didn't know what. It was, it was just a fantasy, but lots of people experience that. Well, it turns out human beings are not very good at attributing the causes of our happiness and unhappiness. What I was really doing was flailing around. My rational mind was looking for a way to explain what in fact was going on just because of changes in my brain and because of my age. What I was in fact feeling, this rough, rough patch in my 40s, this was a built-in transition. Lots of people go through it. Not everybody, but lots of people. It's totally normal. But it's not about anything. It's just change. One way that we, that we have that confirms that is that the same pattern of declining happiness followed by increasing happiness for the bottom and the middle of life has turned up in chimps and orangutans. And there, you, you know pretty well it's not about anything because they don't have you know, careers and, and families and marriages and all that. So the problem is the happiness curve, age-related dissatisfaction, as, as I call it, is not really about anything. It's just something that's happening. It's like, you know, what is adolescence about? Well, you know, it's a stage, right? It's natural human development. But we make the mistake of thinking it must be about something, so we leave our marriages, we quit our job. For most people, midlife dissatisfaction, the bottom of the happiness curve, is not a crisis. It's the opposite of a crisis. It's just a long, slow slog, and we live with it and go on with our lives. It's not, it's not acute depression. It's just a big nuisance. If we misattribute it and we go out and make you know, big life mistakes based on the false idea that what we really need is to throw all the, the whole pack of cards in the air, quit our job, leave our marriage, and go off to Tahiti, well, that becomes midlife crisis. Most people don't have that, but a U-curve turns into a V-curve, this sudden sharp crash, often because we make these mistakes. So it's really important to know if you're in a midlife slump, it's probably not about you. It may not be about your life. You may need change in midlife, as at any other time of life. Change is often good. But don't be radical. 
Don't be disruptive. Don't be impulsive. Impulsivity is not your friend at this stage. Plan it carefully. Talk to people. Make sure it's a progressive, sensible change for you. And when we come back, more with author Jonathan Rausch. The book is The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And if you like what you hear here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And we'll send you the five best stories each week. And this is a story in the end, not only about Jonathan Rausch's uh, curve, his happiness curve, and his experience at the bottom of that curve, but all of our lives. And we all know what he's talking about. I think that so many of you are nodding and thinking, aha, that's what this was all about, this journey. When we come back, more with Jonathan Rausch. And thanks always to MyPillow.com. The folks there, well, they they make the best pillows in America. And if you want some real happiness, a good night's sleep will get you there. Go to MyPillow.com and tell them, well, at least enter the promo code STORIES to get their very best specials. That's MyPillow.com. And again, my wife and I use them. We actually fight over whose pillow is whose. And... We think we like each other's pillows more than our own. It's very strange. MyPillow.com. Real happiness is a good night's sleep. When we come back, more with author Jonathan Rauch. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with author Jonathan Rausch, whose own midlife unhappiness prompted him to take a deep dive into the science of happiness throughout human life. In writing his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, he discovered that on average, people develop higher life satisfaction later in their life, even as they're getting sick more often and can't do all the things they once did. Jonathan, in your chapter called The Paradox of Aging, we meet a 94-year-old woman named Nora who rates her life as 100% satisfied with everything. Tell us about Nora. Nora um, actually passed away since I wrote those words. She was 94, and she, I don't know if I put this in the book, but she had a cancer diagnosis at the time. And yet there she was saying it was the most fulfilling part of her life ever, even though she had some terrible losses. Her husband had died many years ago, and she had been single. Um, she'd been the caregiver for her sister who had had Alzheimer's who had died and that had been a rough patch. She was very wise and she said, these things that used to seem like they mattered so much, I'm not using her words, but she said they seem ephemeral now. People later in life feel like they no longer have anything to prove. They feel like they can focus more on the, on the most important things in life. And that's partly because their brains have changed to allow them to do that. And it's, it's very common. There's tons of evidence now, just tons, that what I saw in Nora and other people, I surveyed lots of people for my book and interviewed lots of people, that this is a, a very deep phenomenon. This is, this is really changes in our brains and values as we age that make it easier to be satisfied and easier to be wise. 
You know, you write, quote, Fortunately, the depressive realism of middle age turns out to be, well, unrealistic. Life indeed gets better, much better. Again, this is not what the culture sells us. Old age is like death in the culture. Yeah, one of the reasons I wrote this book is it's all the stuff I'd wish that I could have known when I was 40. And by the time I was 50, I was so pessimistic about the future because I saw at that point, you know, 10 or so years of this fog of disappointment. And part of the reason I was so gloomy about the future is what you just said. You know, the story that our society says is, well, it's all downhill from here. If I had just known that if I can just wait this thing out, not make any big mistakes, that it's got a wonderful payoff, it's a transition. It's not midlife crisis. It's, it's midlife transition to a different brain and a different value set that turn out to be more rewarding. I'm textbook. I seem to be like right from central casting. My U-curve bottomed out in my late 40s, around the time I lost my parents and actually had some major setbacks in life. And I started feeling like maybe it was turning around by the time I was 51 or 52. I'm 58 now. And of course, you know, Life is life, right? There's setbacks, there are disappointments, there's anger and, and all kinds of stuff. And of course, there's politics right now. But despite all that, I also feel gradually like I'm getting more settled. All these voices and fantasies about escape and worthlessness have, have pretty much gone. So that's, that's the real story. Some really prominent social and behavior scientist, Jonathan, came to a pretty startling conclusion in 2011. I'm going to quote again from your book. The peak of emotional life may not occur until well into the seventh decade. And you wrote right after that, the seventh decade exclamation point. Why that exclamation point? It's so counterintuitive. It's what you just said earlier, Lee. You know, we, we just imagine that by the age of 70, much less, you know, 80, that will be in sad decline. And it's, it's just not true. The emotional peak of life is much later. And you mentioned earlier that we have this idea that youth is, you know, it's a time of, of gloriousness and happiness. And, well, most of us have been through that period of life. And the reality about our 20s is that, that they're a time of extreme emotional volatility and great uncertainty. And that goes away later in life. You become much better at balancing emotions, at experiencing equanimity, meeting the world with a sense of perspective. Let's talk about the happiness curve and its purpose, because it's social, and it bends toward this thing called wisdom. Again, those ancient philosophers like Aristotle, they were onto something. Talk about Paul. His story was remarkable and universal. Paul is a guy who I met when I was on a speaking trip, and he was, I was driving around with him, and his story turned out to be a midlife crisis story. It does happen. He was a super motivated, high achiever, ice climber, wanted to do all the hardest routes in the world and broke both his legs trying to do it and would obsess if he wasn't you know, out there on the ice every winter had marriage kids, and he just fell apart in his 40s. When he put himself back together, a big element is that he went out to an Indian reservation to do some teaching and saw the poverty and need out there and began to throw himself into that. And that changed his life. Well, from his perspective, he feels like 
the reservation did this to him. Really, I think the science is more like he did this to him. His brain was not receptive to doing that kind of close, social, connected work when he was younger because he was focused on personal ambition. That's how we're wired. But he became, as he aged through this crisis and beyond, he became more oriented toward helping other people and found a deeper level of satisfaction than he ever known before. And one of the things he said to me along the way was that he thought he had a better toolkit for life, which I thought was a great phrase. So I put that in my pocket and was looking at the literature on what's going on behind the happiness curve. Why would evolution want us to have this additional satisfaction later in life? And the word wisdom kept popping up. It turns out there's a science of wisdom. Wisdom is not like some folklore concept from fairy tales. It's a real thing. It's measurable. There are tests for it. There are people looking for it in brain scans. It's not the same as knowledge, expertise, skill, experience. It's certainly not the same as intelligence. It has almost zero relationship to how intelligent you are, how wise you are. But wisdom is just what Paul said. It's about having that toolkit for life. So it's wisdom is rare at any age, young or old, but we're better equipped for wisdom as we get older because wisdom is about the ability to balance competing emotions, to synthesize a lot of experience, not to fly off the handle too much, and it's especially about helping navigate complex social situations. We think that's why it exists. Tribes that have wise people tend to do better, and families that have wise people, because wise people help offer good advice about how to cope with stuff. And lastly, Jonathan, talk about faith and religious community. Many of the happiest and most satisfied among us are also people of deep faith. Does that have any relationship to the happiness curve? Faith, I think, is something largely separate. Um, the happiness curve is about the effect of time, but it's important for people to remember lots of other things affect your well-being in life. You know, for example, your health and the satisfaction you get from your job and the quality of your marriage. And yes, faith is an important element of that. So on any given day, Lee's or Jonathan's life satisfaction depends on a host of variables, and no one should think that time, the happiness curve, is the only thing going on. It's one of a lot of things going on. So by all means, faith can increase well-being, and there's a lot of documentary evidence to, to show that that's true. But it's, it's kind of a separate thing. It's, it's a good thing. It's an important thing, and I ran across it when I was doing my research. But what we need to remember is it's not the only thing going on. Your age will also affect your happiness, and it will affect your receptivity to faith and to community and stuff like the amount of and quality of volunteering that you're doing, for example, which is important in many faith communities. Indeed, and, and I'm going to end with a, a line that I think almost summarizes the book. It's just such a beautiful one. Time and aging fight happiness in midlife, then switch sides. Talk about that. That's it. It's what I it's what I just said. You know, it's time and aging are not the only thing going on. 
It's like you can walk uphill and it's harder or downhill and it's easier, but where you go depends on what direction you set and the terrain and, you know, and the distance and the weather. Lots of things go on, but it's very important to know that there is this U-shape to life and that if you're someone who is feeling that, you know, your, your midlife is a grind of disappointment and it seems like it's, it's never going to end and you don't know what to do, for a lot of people, in a lot of cases, what to do is nothing. It's not literally nothing. Reach out to other people. It's, it's better not to bottle this up. Avoid big mistakes and impulsive decisions of the time we talked about earlier. Counseling is often a good idea. These days, there's counselors know all about this, and they're not going to tell you you're depressed, you need medication, off to the, the funny farm. So, and coaching is a really good thing to do because coaching is about realigning our lives to meet our changing values. And that's especially important in middle age because that's what's really going on. So all of those things can help, but the most important thing is to understand that what's happening to you is natural, normal, healthy, nothing to be ashamed of, and it goes away. It gets better. And we're speaking with Jonathan Rausch's book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And Jonathan, thanks for joining us. It was great to be here. Thank you. And go to Amazon.com and get The Happiness Curve. It's as good a book as I've read in a very long time. This is Lee Habib, Jonathan Rausch's story, the story of human happiness, here on Our American Stories.